Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. This is Episode 5, Book 1, and I'm your host, Catherine Lopez-Luker. Poor Tom. No one appreciates him, and no one appreciates his best friend, Joe Harper, either. So the two of them, and Huckleberry Finn, of course, decide to leave civilization and become pirates out on Jackson Island. Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer Chapter 12 One of the reasons why Tom's mind had drifted away from its secret troubles was that it had found a new and weighty matter to interest itself about. Becky Thatcher had stopped coming to school. Tom had struggled with his pride a few days and tried to whistle her down the wind, but failed. He began to find himself hanging around her father's house nights and feeling very miserable. She was sick. What if she should die? There was distraction in the thought. He no longer took an interest in war or even in piracy. The charm of life was gone. There was nothing but dreariness left. He put his hoop away and his bat. There was no joy in them anymore. His aunt was concerned. She began to try all manner of medicines on him. She was one of those people who are infatuated with patent medicines and all newfangled methods of producing health or mending it. She was an inveterate experimenter in these things. When something fresh in this line came out, she was in a fever right away to try it, not on herself, for she was never ailing, but on anybody else that came handy. She was a subscriber for all the health periodicals and phrenological frauds, and the solemn ignorance they were inflated with was breath to her nostrils. All the rot they contained about ventilation and how to go to bed and how to get up and what to eat and what to drink and how much exercise to take and what frame of mind to keep oneself in and what sort of clothing to wear was all gospel to her. She never observed that her health journals of the current month customarily upset everything they had recommended the month before. She was as simple-hearted and honest as the day was long, and so she was an easy victim. She gathered together her quack periodicals and her quack medicines, and thus armed with death, went about on her pale horse, metaphorically speaking, with hell following after. But she never suspected that she was not an angel of healing and the balm of Gilead in disguise to the suffering neighbors. The water treatment was new now, and Tom's low condition was a windfall to her. She had him out at daylight every morning, stood him up in the woodshed, and drowned him with a deluge of cold water. Then she scrubbed him down with a towel like a file, and so brought him to. Then she rolled him up in a wet sheet and put him away under blankets till she sweated his soul clean, and the yellow stains of it came out through his pores, as Tom said. Yet notwithstanding all this, the boy grew more and more melancholy and pale and dejected. She added hot baths, sits baths and plunges. The boy remained as dismal as a hearse. She began to assist the water with a slim oatmeal diet and blister plasters. She calculated his capacity as she wooded jugs and filled him up every day with quack cure-alls. 
Tom had become indifferent to persecution by this time. This phase filled the old lady's heart with consternation. This indifference must be broken up at any cost. Now she heard of painkiller for the first time. She ordered a lot at once. She tasted it and was filled with gratitude. It was simply fire in a liquid form. She dropped the water treatment and everything else and pinned her faith to painkiller. She gave Tom a teaspoonful and watched with the deepest anxiety for the result. Her troubles were instantly at rest, her soul at peace again, for the indifference was broken up. The boy could not have shown a wilder, heartier interest if she had built a fire under him. Tom felt that it was time to wake up. This sort of life might be romantic enough in his blighted condition, but it was getting to have too little sentiment and too much distracting variety about it. So he thought over various plans for relief and finally hit upon that of professing to be fond of painkiller. He asked for it so often that he became a nuisance, and his aunt ended by telling him to help himself and quit bothering her. If it had been Sid, she would have had no misgivings to alloy her delight, but since it was Tom, she watched the bottle clandestinely. She found that the medicine really did diminish, but it did not occur to her that the boy was mending the health of a crack in the sitting-room floor with it. One day Tom was in the act of dosing the crack, when his aunt's yellow cat came along, purring, eyeing the teaspoon avariciously and begging for a taste. Tom said, Don't ask for it unless you want it, Peter. But Peter signified that he did want it. You better make sure. Peter was sure. Now you've asked for it, and I'll give it to you, because there ain't anything mean about me. But if you find you don't like it, you mustn't blame anybody but your own self. Peter was agreeable, so Tom pried his mouth open and poured down the painkiller. Peter sprang a couple of yards into the air, then delivered a war whoop and set off round and round the room, banging against furniture, upsetting flower pots, and making general havoc. Next, he rose on his hind feet and pranced around in a frenzy of enjoyment, with his head over his shoulder and his voice proclaiming his unappeasable happiness. Then he went tearing around the house again, spreading chaos and destruction in his path. Aunt Polly entered in time to see him throw a few double somersaults, deliver a final and mighty hurrah, and sail through the open window, carrying the rest of the flower pots with him. The old lady stood petrified with astonishment, peering over her glasses. Tom lay on the floor, expiring with laughter. Tom, what on earth ails that cat? I don't know, Anne, gasped the boy. Why, I never seen anything like it. What did make him act so? Indeed, I don't know, Aunt Polly. Cats always act so when they're having a good time. They do, do they? There was something in the tone that made Tom apprehensive. Yes'm, that is, I believe they do. You do? Yes'm. The old lady was bending down, Tom watching with interest, emphasized by anxiety. Too late, he divined her drift. The handle of the telltale spoon was visible under the bed valance. Aunt Polly took it up, held it. Tom winced and dropped his eyes. Aunt Polly raised him by the usual handle, his ear, and cracked his head soundly with her thimble. Now, sir, what did you want to treat that poor dumb beast so for? I done it out of pity for him because he hadn't any aunt. Hadn't any aunt, you numbskull? What has that got to do with it? Heaps, because if he'd had one, she'd have burned him out herself. She'd have roasted his bowels out of him without any more feeling than if he was a human. 
Aunt Polly felt a sudden pang of remorse. This was putting the thing in a new light. What was cruelty to a cat might be cruelty to a boy, too. She began to soften. She felt sorry. Her eyes watered a little, and she put her hand on Tom's head and said gently, I was meaning for the best, Tom, and Tom, it did do you good. Tom looked up in her face with just a perceptible twinkle peeping through his gravity. I know you was meaning for the best, Auntie, and so was I with Peter. It done him good, too. I never see him get around so nice. Oh, go long with you, Tom, before you aggravate me again. And you try and see if you can't be a good boy for once, and you needn't take any more medicine. Tom reached school ahead of time. It was noticed that this strange thing had been occurring every day latterly. And now, as usual of late, he hung about the gate of the schoolyard instead of playing with his comrades. He was sick, he said, and he looked it. He tried to seem to be looking everywhere, but really he was looking down the road. Presently, Jeff Thatcher hove in sight, and Tom's face lighted. He gazed a moment and then turned sorrowfully away. When Jeff Thatcher arrived, Tom accosted him and led up warily to opportunities for remark about Becky. But the giddy lad never could see the bait. Tom watched and watched, hoping whenever a frisking frock came in sight and hating the owner of it, as soon as he saw that she was not the right one. At last, frocks ceased to appear, and he dropped hopelessly into the dumps. He entered the empty schoolhouse and sat down to suffer. Then, one more frock passed in at the gate, and Tom's heart gave a great bound. The next instant he was out, and going on, yelling, laughing, chasing boys, jumping over the fence at risk of life and limb, throwing handsprings, standing on his head, doing all the heroic things he could think of, and keeping a furtive eye out, all the while, to see if Becky Thatcher was noticing. But she seemed to be unconscious of it all. She never looked. Could it be possible that she was not aware that he was there? He carried his exploits to her immediate vicinity, came war-whooping around, snatched a boy's cap, hurled it to the roof of the schoolhouse, broke through a group of boys, tumbling them in every direction, and fell sprawling himself under Becky's nose, almost upsetting her. And she turned with her nose in the air, and he heard her say, <laughs> Some people think they're mighty smart, always showing off. Tom's cheeks burned. He gathered himself up and sneaked off, crushed and crestfallen. Chapter 13 Tom's mind was made up now. He was gloomy and desperate. He was a forsaken, friendless boy, he said. Nobody loved him. When they found out what they had driven him to, perhaps they would be sorry. He had tried to do right and get along, but they would not let him, since nothing would do them but to be rid of him. Let it be so, and let them blame him for the consequences. Why shouldn't they? What right had the friendless to complain? Yes, they had forced him to it at last. He would lead a life of crime. There was no choice. By this time he was far down Meadowland, and the bell for school to take up tinkled faintly upon his ear. He sobbed now to think he should never, never hear that old familiar sound any more. It was very hard, but it was forced on him. Since he was driven out into the cold world, he must submit, but he forgave them. Then the sobs came thick and fast. Just at this point he met his soul's sworn comrade, Joe Harper, hard-eyed, and with evidently a great and dismal purpose in his heart. 
Plainly, here were two souls with but a single thought. Tom, wiping his eyes with his sleeve, began to blubber out something about a resolution to escape from hard usage and lack of sympathy at home by roaming abroad into the great world, never to return, and ended by hoping that Joe would not forget him. But it transpired that this was a request which Joe had been going to make of Tom, and had come to hunt him up for that purpose. His mother had whipped him for drinking some cream, which he had never tasted and knew nothing about. It was plain that she was tired of him and wished him to go. If she felt that way, there was nothing for him to do but to succumb. He hoped she would be happy and never regret having driven her poor boy out into the unfeeling world to suffer and die. As the two boys walked sorrowing along, they made a new compact to stand by each other and be brothers and never separate till death relieved them of their troubles. Then they began to lay their plans. Joe was for being a hermit and living on crusts in a remote cave and dying sometime of cold and want and grief. But after listening to Tom, he conceded that there were some conspicuous advantages about a life of crime, and so he consented to be a pirate. Three miles below St. Petersburg, at a point where the Mississippi River was a trifle over a mile wide, there was a long, narrow, wooded island with a shallow bar at the head of it, and this offered well as a rendezvous. It was not inhabited. It lay far over toward the farther shore, abreast a dense and almost wholly unpeopled forest. So Jackson's Island was chosen. Who were to be the subjects of their piracies was a matter that did not occur to them. Then they hunted up Huckleberry Finn, and he joined them promptly, for all careers were one to him. He was indifferent. They presently separated to meet at a lonely spot on the river bank, two miles above their village, at the favorite hour, which was midnight. There was a small log raft there which they meant to capture. Each would bring hooks and lines and such provisions as he could steal in the most dark and mysterious way, as became outlaws, and before the afternoon was done, they had all managed to enjoy the sweet glory of spreading the fact that pretty soon the town would hear something. All who got this vague hint were cautioned to be mum and wait. About midnight, Tom arrived with a boiled ham and a few trifles, and stopped in a dense undergrowth on a small bluff overlooking the meeting place. It was starlight and very still. The mighty river lay like an ocean at rest. Tom listened a moment, but no sound disturbed the quiet. Then he gave a low, distinct whistle. It was answered from under the bluff. Tom whistled twice more. These signals were answered in the same way. Then a guarded voice said, Who goes there? Tom Sawyer, the Black Avenger of the Spanish Main. Name your names. Huck Finn, the Red-Handed, and Joe Harper, the Terror of the Seas. Tom had furnished these titles from his favorite literature. Tis well. Give the countersign. Two hoarse whispers delivered the same awful words simultaneously to the brooding night. Blood. Then Tom tumbled his ham over the bluff and let himself down after it, tearing both skin and clothes to some extent in the effort. There was an easy, comfortable path along the shore under the bluff, but it lacked the advantages of difficulty and danger so valued by a pirate. The terror of the seas had brought a side of bacon, and 
had about worn himself out with getting it there. Finn the Red-Handed had stolen a skillet and a quantity of half-cured leaf tobacco, and had also brought a few corn cobs to make pipes with. But none of the pirates smoked or chewed but himself. The Black Avenger of the Spanish Main said it would never do to start without some fire. That was a wise thought. Matches were hardly known there in that day. They saw a fire smoldering upon a great raft a hundred yards above, and they went stealthily thither and helped themselves to a chunk. They made an imposing adventure of it, saying, Hissed! every now and then, and suddenly halting with finger on lips, moving with hands on imaginary dagger hilts and giving orders in dismal whispers that, if the foe stirred to let him have it to the hilt, because dead men tell no tales. They knew well enough that the raftsmen were all down at the village, laying in stores or having a spree, but still that was no excuse for their conducting this thing in an unpiratical way. They shoved off presently, Tom in command, Huck at the left door and Joe at the forward. Tom stood amidships, gloomy-browed with folded arms, and gave his orders in a low, stern whisper. Luff and bring her to the wind. Aye, aye, sir. Steady, steady. Steady it is, sir. Let her go off a point. Point it is, sir. As the boys steadily and monotonously drove the raft toward midstream, it was no doubt understood that these orders were given only for style, and were not intended to mean anything in particular. What sail is she carrying? Courses, topsails, and flying jibs, sir. Send the royals up. Lay out aloft there, half a dozen of you. Foremast tonsils, lively now. Aye, aye, sir. Shake out that main to gallant. Sheets and braces now, my hearties. Aye, aye, sir. Helm lee, hard a port. Stand by to meet her when she comes. Port, port. Now, men, with a will. Steady. Steady it is, sir. The raft drew beyond the middle of the river. The boys pointed her head right and then lay on their oars. The river was not so high. There was not more than two or three mile current. Hardly a word was said during the next three quarters of an hour. Now the raft was passing before the distant town. Two or three glimmering lights showed where it lay, peacefully sleeping, beyond the vague, vast sweep of star-gemmed water, unconscious of the tremendous event that was happening. The Black Avenger stood still with folded arms, looking his last upon the scene of his former joys and his later sufferings, and wishing she could see him now, abroad on the wide sea, facing peril and death with dauntless heart, going to his doom with a grim smile on his lips. It was but a small strain on his imagination to remove Jackson's Island beyond eyeshot of the village, and so he looked his last with a broken and satisfied heart. The other pirates were looking their last too, and they all looked so long that they came near letting the current drift them out of the range of the island, but they discovered the danger in time and made shift to avert it. About two o'clock in the morning, the raft grounded on the bar two hundred yards above the head of the island, and they waded back and forth until they had landed their freight. Part of the little raft's belongings consisted of an old sail, and this they spread over a nook in the bushes for a tent to shelter their provisions, but they themselves would sleep in the open air, in good weather, as became outlaws. They built a fire against the side of a great log twenty or thirty steps within the somber depths of the forest, and then cooked some bacon in the frying pan for supper, 
and used up half of the corn-pone stock they had brought. It seemed glorious sport to be feasting in that wild freeway, in the virgin forest of an unexplored and uninhabited island, far from the haunts of men, and they said they would never return to civilization. The climbing fire lit up their faces and threw its ruddy glare upon the pillared tree trunks of their forest temple, and upon the varnished foliage and festooning vines. When the last crisp slice of bacon was gone, and the last allowance of corn-pone devoured, the boys stretched themselves out on the grass, filled with contentment. They could have found a cooler place, but they would not deny themselves such a romantic feature as the roasting campfire. "'Ain't it jolly,' said Joe. "'It's nuts,' said Tom. "'What would the boys say if they could see us?' "'Say, will they just die to be here. "'Hey, Hucky?' "'I reckon so,' said Huckleberry. "'Anyway, I'm suited. "'I don't want nothing better than this. "'I don't ever get enough to eat generally. "'And here they can't come and kick at a feller "'and bully-rag him so.' "'It's just the life for me,' said Tom. "'You don't have to get up mornings, "'and you don't have to go to school and wash "'and all that blame foolishness.' You see, a pirate don't have to do anything, Joe, when he's ashore. But a hermit, he has to be praying considerable, and then he don't have any fun anyway. All up by himself that way. Ah, yes, that's so, said Joe, but I hadn't thought much about it, you know. I'd a good deal rather be a pirate now that I've tried it. You see, said Tom, people don't go much on hermits nowadays like they used to in old times, but a pirate's always respected. And a hermit's got to sleep on the hardest place he can find and put sackcloth and then ashes on his head and stand out in the rain and... What does he put sackcloth and ashes on his head for, inquired Huck? I don't know, but they've got to do it. Hermits always do. You'd have to do that if you was a hermit. Darned if I would, said Huck. Well, what would you do? I don't know, but I wouldn't do that. Why, Huck, you'd have to. How would you get around it? Why, I just wouldn't stand it. I'd run away. Run away? Well, you'd be a nice slouch of a hermit. You'd be a disgrace. The red-handed made no response, being better employed. He had finished gouging out a cob, and now he fitted a weed stem to it, loaded it with tobacco, and was pressing a coal to the charge and blowing a cloud of fragrant smoke. He was in the full bloom of luxurious contentment. The other pirates envied him this majestic vice and secretly resolved to acquire it shortly. Presently, Huck said, What do pirates have to do? Tom said, Well, they have just a bully time. Take ships and burn them and get the money and bury it in awful places in their island where there's ghosts and things to watch it and kill everybody in the ships and make them walk the plank. And they carry the women to the island, said Joe. They don't kill the women. No, assented Tom. They don't kill the women. They're too noble. And the women's always beautiful, too. And don't they wear the bulliest clothes? Ah, "'No, all gold and silver and diamonds,' said Joe with enthusiasm. "'Who?' said Huck. "'Why are the pirates?' "'Huck scanned his own clothing forlornly. "'I reckon I ain't dressed fittin' for a pirate,' he said, "'with a regretful pathos in his voice. "'But I ain't got none but these.' "'But the other boys told him the fine clothes would come fast enough "'after they should have begun their adventures. "'They made him understand that his poor rags would do to begin with, though it was customary for wealthy pirates to start with a proper wardrobe. Gradually the talk died out and drowsiness began to steal upon the eyelids of the little waifs. The pipe dropped from the fingers of the red-handed and he slept the sleep of the conscience free in the weary. 
The terror of the seas and the black avenger of the Spanish main had more difficulty in getting to sleep. They said their prayers inwardly and lying down, since there was nobody there with authority to make them kneel and recite aloud. In truth, they had a mind not to say them at all, but they were afraid to proceed to such lengths as that, lest they might call down a sudden and special thunderbolt from heaven. Then at once they reached and hovered upon the imminent verge of sleep. But an intruder came now that would not down. It was conscience. They began to feel a vague fear that they had been doing wrong to run away. And next they thought of the stolen meat. And then the real torture came. They tried to argue it away by reminding conscience that they had purloined sweetmeats and apples scores of times. But conscience was not to be appeased by such thin plausibilities. It seemed to them in the end that there was no getting around the stubborn fact that taking sweetmeats was only hooking, while taking bacon and ham and such valuables was plain, simple stealing. And there was a commandment against that in the Bible. So they inwardly resolved that so long as they remained in the business, their piracies should not again be sullied with the crime of stealing. Then conscience granted a truce, and these curiously inconsistent pirates fell peacefully to sleep. This is your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to the adventures of Tom Sawyer. You can find a link to our podcast on the Marshall Public Library webpage, www.marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.